that better? Yeah? All right. So, uh, again, quote from John Calvin, the pastor must have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. And the scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. Uh, in this letter to uh, the Colossians, we see Paul doing just that. He's using scripture to comfort the believers in Colossae while simultaneously exposing the wolves and the thieves who seek to destroy this young church. In fact, um, in chapter 2, verse 8, we see the chief concern that Paul wants to address in this letter. We see him warning the Colossians against coming under the influence of these false teachers who prided themselves on being wise philosophers and being deeply spiritual. And yet, in all of their spiritual endeavors, they were departing from Christ, which makes them wolves and thieves. And so, Paul comforts the sheep. He calls them to Christ. And in chapter 2, verse 16, he begins the passage with a conjunctive adverb, therefore. And you have to ask the question, what is it therefore? Well, it's there to show a cause and effect. And the cause and effect is this. True gospel teaching and preaching faithfulness to the word of God keeps us in Christ. And false teaching will lead us away from Christ. So he goes through all of chapter 2 unpacking very, very clearly, drawing attention to these false teachers, their approach, their strategy to help the Colossians to develop the discernment to know what is true. Who to believe, who to trust. So chapter 2 is a very important chapter. In verse 23 of this chapter, he tosses out a phrase, self-made religion. And by that, he simply means any form of spirituality or religion that did not originate with God. It is man-made. It is of the devil. It is not of Christ. It is self-made religion. And so the title this morning is Say No to Self-Made Religion. We just came off a midterm election. There were all these different things you had to vote on. People trying to get your vote to say yes to this, no to that. Well, here Paul is saying to the Colossians, you need to say no to self-made religion. And we'll see here from this passage that Paul, his argument against these false teachers and how to discern who these false teachers were and who the true representatives of the faith are. We see him making his argument come clear into the light in this chapter. But I want to kind of, before we read the passage, I want to show you how he's been building this argument. He's been building this case against these false teachers. He's been building a case to show that the reason why he's writing this letter is to help them to see the truth, to know who to trust. And he's been building a very strong and compelling case. Beginning in verse 3 and 4, when he celebrates the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he celebrates their faith in Christ. And that just may seem like Paul is being nice, a kind of a courtesy, so to speak. But no, he wants them to understand the false teaching is taking them away from Christ. He wants to celebrate faith in Christ, not the departure from Christ. And then in chapter 1, verse 7, 
He reminds them that they learned this faith, that they heard the gospel preached through Epaphras, who was beloved, a faithful minister of Christ, again, in contrast to the false teachers. And then in chapter 1, verse 23, he talks about the, the suffering, the affliction that he was experiencing and what the gospel ministers experienced as the world pours out its hatred on these faithful ministers who were, pre who were preaching Christ, right? These false teachers pouring out hatred on these guys preaching Christ. And then in verse 28 of chapter 1, he reminds them that it's Christ that we proclaim. It's Christ that we want you to mature in. Again, he is making a very clear case that their teaching, this false teaching, isn't establishing you in Christ as he is seeking to do, as Epaphras has been endeavoring to do. Again, in chapter 2, we, hit, we see him saying very clearly, drawing attention to these false teachers, that they are trying to delude you with plausible arguments. But in verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, you are to be rooted and built up in Christ. And then in verse 8, that's the key. This is the reason why he has written this letter to warn the Colossian church not to be taken captive by these false teachers and their philosophy, their empty deceit, according to human tradition and elemental spirits of the world. And so by the time we get to chapter uh, 2, verse 20, Paul's argument best summed up in the statement, if with Christ you died. Why this? Why that? Faithful teaching helps us to see Christ more clearly. False teaching distracts us away from Christ. So the main point this morning, that if a teaching is of Christ, it will keep us in him. And whatever is not of him will lead us away from him. In verses 16 through 18, we'll see that the false teachers condemn. And in verses 18 and 19, we'll see the false teachers bearing a deceptive fruit. And then in verses 20 through 23, we'll see that false teaching is powerless in the areas that really matter to God. One last thing I want to say before I read the passage and pray for us. There are some themes that he touches on again in this chapter. He's been touching on them in chapter one, and then he revisits them in the passage that I'm about to read to you. One of them being body. There's a reference to the body. There's a reference to Christ's body, to the individual body. But also implied is the church. Seven times throughout chapter two, Paul has made reference to the body. And then he makes, again, a reference to the elemental spirits, that being the worldly and occult and demonic spirits. And then again, a few times he references human precepts, teachings and philosophies and arguments. Wisdom and knowledge is something that he references again. And then dying with Christ or alive with Christ or being buried with Christ. These are themes that Paul has intentionally revisited to unpack in the passage that we are about to read this morning. So without further ado, let me read the passage and then I'll pray and unpack what all this means for us. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink 
or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is the word of God. Father, thank you for your word. It is authoritative. It is infallible. It is the only rule of faith that you've given us that we may know how to live a life pleasing to you, acceptable to you in every way. God, I pray that this morning through this teaching, you would sharpen our discernment by way of your word and your spirit that we might be able to distinguish between that which is of the world and of the flesh. That we might cling to Christ, grow in him, and glorify you as a result of it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So again, chapter 2, a very important chapter in the letter to the Colossians. It's a very dense chapter. Being honest with you, a pretty difficult chapter to teach. Not because of the things that are in it, but because of the density of the chapter itself. And there's some things in there that, by way of cultural context, we're, we're kind of separated from. And it's hard to kind of really get a grasp on what is said and what is meant. But the closing passage that I just read to you really does bring some clarity to what Paul is after in this chapter and why he has written this letter. And that is to expose these false teachers to expose false teaching, to help the church grow in discernment, to know how to distinguish that which is true and that which is false. And so one of the first things we see, and this is in passage uh, in verse 16, as well as in verse 18, we see that false teaching. Yeah, batteries are dying. It's flashing on me. Um, I can use a handheld if there's one. Good. No. There it is. Mike, I'm holding. Turn that one off. 
So as I was saying, the false teachers condemn, verse 16, Paul says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. And then in verse 18, he says, let no, let no one disqualify you. So these false teachers, they were condemning the believers there because the believers were not following a religion or a set of religious rules and values that were like their own. And so Paul is saying to this church, again, he's got two voices, one to call the sheep, one to scare off the wolves. He's, he's saying to the sheep, don't be condemned by these guys when you choose Christ rather than their weirdness. Don't be condemned. Don't feel condemned. Don't let them pass judgment on you in such a way that it discourages your faith in Christ is what he's saying to them. And so false teachers when you do not comply, when you do not walk in line as they would have you to walk in line according to themselves, not according to Christ, they will condemn you for it. And we as Christians, we ought to know the difference between condemnation and conviction. That's very important because both terms are in the Bible and both terms are judicial in nature. Both terms have to do with the feeling of guilt but they have radically different ends. Condemnation seeks to establish the fact that you are reprehensible, worthless, useless, of no use, deserving the worst and the severest form of judgment and punishment. And so when someone comes under condemnation, they feel like there is no value, no love, no acceptance, no way to be forgiven. That is condemnation. Satan likes condemnation. When you sin, he wants to heap condemnation on you to discourage you turning to Christ. So we as Christians, we need to know the difference between the two. Conviction, on the other hand, it wants to convince you of the truth. It is to give you a compelling reason of the truth so that your hearts would turn to the truth, receive the truth, cling to the truth, and be forgiven. To walk faithfully in it. It's to turn you away from error. So we see in this passage, the false teachers judging, condemning in a way in which people couldn't be forgiven. They, they maybe had to pay penance or something to get back into good graces. But we see Paul aiming for conviction, going after conviction. If Christ, if you have died with Christ, why this? He wants them to see the truth and to turn to Christ. That's not the goal of the false teachers. And the false teachers in this setting, they were condemning the people for not being like them in three different categories. The first one had to do with strict adherence to dietary regulations. It says they were passing judgment on people regarding food and drink. Now this is a mixture of Old Testament dietary laws. There's also a concern during that day for Christians as well as Jews about purchasing meat in the marketplace, meat that may have been sacrificed to an idol that is now being sold in the marketplace. But there's also a looking back to the prophet Daniel and the three Hebrew youth, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their refusal to eat the king's food but to only eat vegetables. So there's a mixture of all three things. And these false teachers are saying, unless you embrace this way, you're not really about it. You're not really after God. You're not really following God. 
And so they condemned him in the category of dietary regulations. Secondly, they condemned them based on a strict and particular observance of Jewish holidays and traditions. The Jewish calendar year, right? He says, with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath, festival being, you know, the Passover, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. As it relates to a new moon, that, that had to do with the harvest and the celebrating of that or, or the first or the beginning of the month and giving uh, thanksgiving to God. That was a command to the Old Testament saints. That was a commandment to Israel, but not to the church. And then as it relates to the Sabbath, uh, believe it or not, in, in Old Testament Israel, there were, there were different types of Sabbaths, and this related to the festival. There were special Sabbaths, right? There's the regular Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, but there were special Sabbaths. And so they were looking at the church and said, unless you kept these things, unless you kept them like we are keeping them, you really have no part in God. But Paul in verse 17 says that those things were a shadow. They were a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. In other words, he's saying everything that God gave to Old Testament Israel in the form of these dietary codes, the calendar year, the special holidays and festivals, that was like GPS pointing to a destination and Christ is the destination. And once we get to Christ, we no longer need that. And yet, these false teachers, not clinging to Christ, lost sight of who Christ is, is only committed to these things. And the third area that they condemned the people in had to do with the absence of mystical religious experience in the life of these young believers. This had to do with, Paul calls it, worship of angels. That they were worshiping angels, that they were claiming to have these visions and experiencing angels. Again, this may be a reference to what Daniel experienced in Babylon, them claiming to have a similar experience. Either way, there was, there's an indication here based on the language Paul uses that they are worshiping them that implies these guys were asking angels for guidance and protection. Where do you see that in the Bible? We don't. We see the angels at different times were sent and commissioned to protect God's people, but we do not see God commanding us to pray to angels for protection. So, verse 16 and 18, the false teachers are condemning, passing judgment, right? Disqualifying these young believers. And Paul says, don't come under their condemnation. It says, don't come under their condemnation. In fact, Paul is clearly trying to call them back to Christ. Christ is the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. Christ is the head. These guys, in their pursuit of these things, they've lost sight of the head, not holding fast to the head. That's verse 19 of which the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. False teachers are condemning. Paul is calling them back to Christ. He's making them aware of this. He's after conviction. The false teachers not only condemn, but they bear deceptive fruit. 
They appear to have some discipline in keeping with these Old Testament traditions and festivals. They appear to have some discipline in keeping the calendar days. They, they appear to have some discipline with regard to their diets. And if you were a young believer looking at what these guys are doing and how they are living, you might be tempted to say with all of that discipline and all of that religious vigor that they seem to display that maybe I should listen to them. Maybe I should follow them, right? But Paul is saying that this is deceptive fruit. Why do we say that? Why do we know that he is calling this deceptive fruit? Well, Christ is the substance. They missed him. Christ is the head. They have not held on to him. And then there is not a law for the body, which if we are knitted together in Christ, we grow together in Christ. There is a love for the body that these guys don't have. They disqualify you. They judge you for not being like them. They're bearing, bearing deceptive fruit. Furthermore, in their boasting about these visions, in their boasting about this asceticism, this way of living that looks deeply spiritual, Paul says that they have become puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. There's no way to reason with them according to Christ. To show them the error of their ways, straying from Christ. They're so full of pride. They have become carnal, is what he's saying. You can't get through to them. That's an indication that the fruit that they are bearing, that they claim to be bearing in God's name, is actually deceptive fruit. Paul is saying you need to look at these things. They're not maintaining. And remaining in Christ. And then look at the pride. The inability. He reasoned with. It's a deceptive fruit. Now they may have pointed to. You know all of the Old Testament examples that I referenced. Like hey look. This is what Israel did in the Old Testament. These are the days that they celebrated. This is how they followed a meal. This is, this is how they ate food. These are the things that they did. That you also need to do. And if you're a young believer in the church in this day and age where you don't have the complete canon of Scripture, you don't have this Bible in front of you, the complete and total revelation of God given to you, you don't have all of that, you're waiting for a letter from Paul, right? You don't have that. You might be tempted to go that way. Even today in our day and age, we might be tempted by guys who get up and in the name of Christ get up and say some very wonky and weird things. We might be tempted to go along with them. How do we know who to trust and what to trust and who to believe? Well, this is what Paul is saying. He's pointing them back to Christ. He's pointing them back to the Word of God. Does it keep you in Him? Does it show you the depths and the riches of Christ? That's what he's been talking about throughout this letter. In Him is the fullness of the deity. Does this teaching take you that down that road? Or does it take you into some ambiguous, mystical, religious experience? Furthermore, I like that word. I've said it a few times. Notice. We need to know the difference between descriptive events in the Bible and prescriptive events in the Bible. 
descriptive being a description of what took place. Prescriptive being, yeah, it's a description of what took place and it's a command. Let me test you on this. And Jacob had two wives. You guys know the name of his two wives? Rachel and Leah, right? That's descriptive. Is that prescriptive? No, it is not. It is descriptive, right? Here's one from the New Testament. John, at least John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. He spits in dirt and makes mud and puts it on the blind man's eye. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> that is descriptive. Another situation where he, you know, puts his finger in his mouth and sticks it in the man's ear. All of it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. But if we don't understand the difference between the two, someone can tell us, someone can put pressure on us, that if every blind man you walk out of this door and see, if you don't look at some dirt, spit in it, and shove it into his eye, you don't love that man, and you don't love God, and you don't have faith. That's how false teaching works. These guys are prideful. Can't be reasoned with. Though they go on in great detail about their visions. The guy who wrote this letter to them, Paul, he wrote a letter to the, to the church in Corinth and he said he had seen some visions. But he was not allowed to talk about it. In fact, God even allowed a messenger of Satan to torment him to keep him humble based on what he saw. That's completely opposite of what these guys are after. So false teachers, they condemn and they bear deceptive fruit. The third thing is that false teaching is powerless in the areas that really matter to God. It's powerless in the areas that really matter to God. Paul says that the false teaching, he summarizes it in verse 21 of chapter 2 where he says, they, they emphasize do not handle do not taste, do not touch. But then he drops the hammer on them. Actually, he drives the nail into the coffin in verse 23 when he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but, but they are of no value. They are powerless in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, the things that matter the most to God, they are powerless towards those things. That being holiness and the obedience of faith. They're powerless in those things. Why? Because they take you away from Christ. They lead you away from Christ. A lot of impressive communicators in the church today, in the world today, or supposedly in the church today, how many times do we grieve and our hearts are broken at scandal after scandal after scandal? It's because in the areas that matter the most, false teaching is powerless. 
It's powerless. It's unable to present you mature in Christ. It's unable to help you to explore the fullness of the depth of the wisdom that is Christ. It is unable, as chapter 3, verse 1 says, to help you to put on Christ. That's what we're going to be getting into next week. It's powerless in the areas that really matter. Holiness and obedience of faith. It's powerless to keep you, to, to, to help people to grow and mature in Christ. Just thinking about this in the context of this whole chapter. Colossians 2, 2, verse 2, where it says, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul's teaching is powerless to lead us in that direction. So anytime we have a question about a teaching, anytime we have a question about some practice that someone is trying to encourage us to engage in, some kind of religious practice, there's some questions that we can ask to help us to discern what is of God and what is of man. What is self-made religion? What is going to keep us in Christ and what will lead us away from Christ? There's some questions we need to ask. And I've written them down for you. This isn't a comprehensive list. There may be some other questions we want to add to this later. Um, there may be some questions that you think of that would be good. But the first one is this. We want to ask, is it biblical? Where do we find this teaching in the Bible? Is the question we want to ask. Where in the Bible? Where is it? Is it biblical or is it made up? Is it man-made? And then if it is in the Bible, we want to make sure that we have an understanding of that which is prescriptive and that which is descriptive. We want to make sure that we understand what is an imperative, a command of God, and what is not. We want to be clear that we know those things before we will entertain some new teaching. Secondly, as we consider the teaching, we want to ask, how should we understand it in Christ? Now that he has come, Christ has come, the substance belongs to Christ. How should we understand this teaching in light of Jesus Christ? Having come and died on the cross and having been buried and raised from the dead, how should we understand this teaching in light of him? Thirdly, as we consider the teaching, we want to ask, does it help me to love Christ and his church better? That's what Paul is getting at in verses 16 through 19. The outcome of it is that they lose Christ, they lose the head, and then they're not unified. There's no unity, there's no love. They're not held together in him because of this false teaching. So does it help me to love Christ and the church better? That's important. And look. Loving the church better doesn't mean that we, we ignore that the church has spots and wrinkles. That's a reference to Ephesians. Yeah, we've got spots and wrinkles. But loving the church better wants us to pursue greater holiness and faithfulness in Christ as a church together. That's important. And the fourth question is, does it help me or challenge me towards greater faithfulness and fruitfulness in my own life? In my walk with Christ. In my own life, does it help me 
Does it accomplish what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 28? Bringing me to maturity in Christ. Will it lead me in that? Will it assist me in that? Will it help me to move forward in that? Again, church. Colossians chapter 2. A very important chapter in this letter. Paul names the false believers, not by name. In other, in, in, in other letters in the Bible, false teachers are named. And the false teaching is named. Here, we know that it's the Colossian heresy. Some kind of mixture of Jewish and ambiguous spiritual experiences that has come together, that has come together to lead the, the people away from Christ. And so we see this is a very important chapter. And I think for us, understanding that anything that we want to put Christ's name on, anything that we want to say is a teaching of Christ, we need to be looking for it in terms of it calling us to faithfulness in Him. It keeping us in Him. It not leading us away from Him. That's our commitment. That's our commitment as a church. That's our commitment in our community groups, in our discipleship groups. That's our commitment from our instruction to parents with young children. It is to put Christ before them. It is to help them to grow up in Christ. It is to help them to treasure Christ. That's our heart. That's why we have gathered, gathered this morning. Sorry, I got some bands on my teeth. They're messing with me. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm reminded of the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed. His desire was for us to be one in Him, to be sanctified by the truth, that we would have love for one another and that the whole world would know that we were sent by Him, that we were of Him, and that we belong to You. But God, would You help us to be faithful to you, to be faithful to the words of Scripture, that we might become that reality, that we might become, as Paul said, the hope of glory for this dark world. That people who are bound in sin and in darkness would see a church unified in Christ, sanctified by the truth of Christ, loving one another and proclaiming Christ and be drawn to that good news. So God, would you help us towards that end? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.